This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, it's sometimes easy to boil an election down to a homespun aphorism. It's the economy, stupid. But often, life gets in the way. So for polyoptics, it's all points of the compass. The Beltway, the Heartland, and the Middle East. This week, with Republicans coursing through Florida and the president heading west, again, we catch up with Politico's prolific Jonathan Martin, J-Mart, as he's known to the Gang of 500, about how Obama, Biden, Romney, and Ryan project their image. Then, as goes Janesville. It's a new documentary from Brad Lichtenstein premiering on PBS's Independent Lens on October 8th. The GM plant at the film's core has been the epicenter of debate since hometown boy Paul Ryan elevated it at the convention in Tampa. Brad's been studying the fallout of its closure for years and now has a stunning piece of film to show for it. And finally, the U.S. lost its man in Libya this week. Ambassador Chris Stevens and three others perished in a horrific night. The analysis, investigation, and politics, which is only just beginning. You'll get the political fallout everywhere, but only on polyoptics are we drilling down to the core of the modern diplomat doing a nation's business in a place of peril. Ambassador Nick Burns, one of the State Department's surest hands spanning a 25-year career, a few of which he had to deal with the likes of me, will share what it's like to represent our flag on foreign soil. But before all that, we go to Washington, D.C. to catch up with Jonathan Martin J. Mart, who this week, as the conventions ended and as the candidates returned to the campaign trail, penned a very trenchant piece, I thought, President Obama's Suds and Spuds Regular Guy Tour. We began this week in uh, Fort Pierce, Florida, with Obama getting bear-hugged by Republican pizza owner Scott Van Duzer as he walked into a pizza and again affected his regular guy image. Jay Mart, thanks for your piece. Uh, what did you think of that moment, and, and how did you decide to write this piece? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I thought that that was uh, a moment that the Obama folks loved because it showed Obama uh, as a so-called regular guy and also something that it's hard to imagine Mitt Romney doing. It's hard to see Mitt Romney uh, hugging a stranger, let alone being lifted up by a stranger off the ground. So I'm sure that they, they enjoyed that. I, look, look, anything that the Obama folks can get that can drive him as a regular sort of fellow – uh, who people can relate to, they're obviously supportive of. So uh, I think in that sense, uh, it was a fun moment for them to have that picture out there. Um, as for the piece I, I wrote for Politico about um, uh, this uh, sports and beer tour, um, I just have noticed, and keeping up with my colleagues' coverage, that the president is talking more about football, given that it's now September and that he's starting to go to more bars and has developed an affection for draft beer that I apparently had missed uh, in the past. And I, look, I, mean, I thought, uh, here are two things that he can do that Governor Romney can't do. You know, because of his faith, Governor Romney doesn't drink alcohol, and he just isn't a really big sports fan. So here's an opportunity for President Obama to you know, connect with people and do things that a lot of Americans enjoy doing, having a beer and talking about football. Um, so uh, that was sort of the genesis of, of the piece. And one of your former colleagues, Jonathan Prince, a former Clinton administration veteran and a really smart guy, said, look, nothing in politics is by accident, I, especially at the White House level. The fact that the president is going to sports bars, ordering beers, talking about football, this is not an accident. I mean, Bill Clinton liked McDonald's food, yes, but the fact that he would jog and McDonald's when running against a patrician president, George W. Bush 41, also not an accident. So I just thought it was one of those moments to try to capture of how campaigns look for any opportunity to connect their candidate to regular people. Except you would never see Jonathan Prince in a sports bar, let's be honest. I mean, he... <laughs> well, if it was a fashionable Brooklyn sports bar, maybe. Yeah, he has to. It has to be a hipster sports bar, and uh, and the the and all and no fish, absolutely no fish. <laughs> um, but you know what? It, it 
I mean, you you actually uh, you go through the the rudimentary business. Of course, you're not going to get a great answer, but you you ask the Obama campaign, and they say uh, there's nothing to see here. Response, and yet I can tell you as a as a former planner of these trips that you know, uh, of course. I mean, you you leave the the keynote moments of a trip. He's he's going to he went to Nevada and Colorado yesterday after uh, the his remarks in the Rose Garden uh, before coming back to Washington tonight, and you leave the keynote moments said behind a podium to the speechwriters, but you as the communications team and the advance team, and I saw you hashtag an advance moment today yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. on Twitter, uh, you have, this is, this is your uh, greenfields to, to do with what you wish, and, if, and you'd say, Jonathan Martin, that uh, uh, Scott Van Duzer's moment uh, bench-pressing the president dominated uh, the airwaves for about two days, right. didn't it? No, exactly. I mean, p- picture all kinds of papers around the country. Um, look, those kinds of things are ingrained in people's in people's minds. Uh, um, and we like to get so caught up in uh, uh, the intricacy of policy, and of course uh, uh, that, that's, that's what we, we do for a living, but a lot of Americans vote based, at least in part, on gut impression. And you know, when you say, oh, yeah, you know, there was a bomb the other day getting picked up off the ground. I mean, it's just something that sticks in people's minds. So imagery matters uh, a great deal. And when you're trying to drive a larger um, frame against the opposition, then um, anything that can reinforce what you're trying to set in people's heads is, is helpful. And I think... Uh, that moment did, and I think him talking about football does too. It's just a way that he can connect with with people, a way to remind people that he's not all that different than you. That's right. I mean, you've been covering this business a long time, and uh, you 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 and Harris wrote uh, after coming out of Atlanta, uh, Charlotte that President Obama's speech was flat. Uh, and that he was a conventional politician was your preview story for Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, but, but as I think about the stagecraft and body language, both in Tampa and Charlotte, uh, you had, first of all, the tortured first 12 minutes of Mitt Romney's uh, 10 to 11 o'clock hour dominated by Clint Eastwood and the Right, chair. right, right. And then Romney finishes a, a perfectly uh, workmanlike and good speech, and Ann Romney comes out, and they give each other this so gentle and and almost uh, uh, split second peck on each yeah. other. And instead, you had in Charlotte, you had Michelle Obama coming out and embracing her husband from behind, almost spooking him along with uh, their daughters. And these were two very different images of the way couples think that they relate to each other. Yeah. And uh, if you think of that old, the classic poll question, shares my values, or the more sort of uh, uh, common reflection, guy I'd like to have a beer with, these right. efforts that we see not just this week or a few weeks ago, but I think going back to President Obama's trip to uh, Ireland, in which he, he put an apostrophe between O and Obama and right, had right. a Guinness, and even the way he tended to try and make peace uh, in the Cambridge police uh, uh, encounter with Henry Louis Gates with the so-called beer summit with Vice President Biden. Right. Beer is a great equalizer for this guy who is sometimes more traditional than people like to think. Yeah. Um, and all that stuff, uh, that stuff matters. I, I, too, was struck by not just uh, uh, not just the coming on stage of Michelle, but by the picture of the family, the two daughters, the president, and the first lady. Uh, that's a very powerful image for a lot of voters in this country. Look for her African Americans seeing the first black female in the White House. But I think it's bigger than that. I mean, I think it's important. President Obama is a cultural figure as much as he's a political figure. And he's not just another president. And the same, he wasn't just another nominee in 2008. He's something bigger than that. And I think that that, 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 that was reinforced by the four of them on, on that stage. And as you know, politicians, presidents especially, are very careful about how they use children uh, in campaigns. And in, but um, just having them on stage, I think, says a lot and is very, very helpful for President Obama. We're talking with 
Politico's Jonathan Martin on Sirius XM Channel 124, Polyoptics on POTUS. Jay Mart, you followed Governor Romney for quite some time. I, right. I paid a lot of attention to him in 2008. There, he used a lot of web video to sort of introduce himself on his website. I remember particularly there was this video that showed him moving through the forest jogging as if he was a character in Hunger Games. Very, yeah. very light, athletic. Right. Uh, four, but four years seems to have made a big difference in this guy's physicality. I, he, he has this sort of stiff affectation. I don't mean stiff in personality, but it doesn't uh, look like he's moving smoothly. Yeah. And this was brought to home, uh, I think, in, in many different respects. Have you seen that this guy is just a little uncomfortable in his own shoulders these days? Yeah, I, look, I don't think it's these days. I mean, I think um, he's always had a problem doing some of the, the retail elements of politics. Um, look, I don't think President Obama has the, the retail skills of a George W. Bush or a Bill Clinton, uh, but I, I think Romney falls short of Obama. I mean, I think he, he is not comfortable uh, doing traditional retail. Um, you know, he's down at the NASCAR race in Richmond last weekend and he's just you know it's not his comfort zone he's he's not fluent in talking about drivers and about nascar and that kind of thing he's not a towel snapper I and mean, that's just not who he is and uh you know he's more of a policy guy and um you know sending him out doing retail is just not him and his natural element and um i think one of the biggest challenges that he has in this campaign is um, trying to come off as likable. I mean, you just look at every poll, and it shows he's got a huge deficit when it comes to likability and when it comes to who folks can, can relate to. Um, beside your domestic interest in this, I was fascinated by uh, Governor Romney's appearance with David Gregory on Meet the Press on Sunday. Where <laughs> they, they're in Boston, and they could, they could go to Faneuil Hall or someplace where the Zakin Bridge and the cars rushing by and the wind yeah. isn't ruffling David Gregory's or Mitt Romney's hair. Did Betsy come back and say, boy, that was a weird setup? Um, I think that they wanted to do something beyond the office, and the easiest thing for them to probably do was um, uh, on the roof, uh, and they could get sort of the Romney banner in the background there. Um, I think, look, I mean, I don't know how many folks thought about the uh, the imagery, um, but it certainly was striking to me and you. Um, uh this is a change, by the way, when it comes to presidential candidates. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, candidates would come to the studio and do in the studio. I think now, if you want to get the interview, you have, you have to go out on the campaign trail and meet these folks wherever they want to do it and do it right. on, on their turf. I think Bill Clinton may have been the last president to do an in-studio Sunday show interview. Well, let's uh, – because – Radio loves Bill Clinton as as does every other audience. Let's hear a little bit of him from Charlotte, and then I want to hear what you and John had to take away from yeah. uh, his presentation. Yeah, we Democrats, we think the country works better with a strong middle class, with real opportunities for poor folks to work their way into it, with a relentless focus on the future, with business and government actually working together to promote growth and broadly shared prosperity. You see, we believe that we're all in this together is a far better philosophy than you're on your own. Jonathan Martin's piece uh, with John F. Harris, the editor-in-chief of Politico and author of the one of the definitive Clinton biographies, The Survivor. The Survivor. Was Still titled, available on Amazon.com. It was titled, How Bill Clinton Does It. So, Jay Mart, how does Bill Clinton do it? Um, you would know Josh better than I would, but um, I thought your analysis was great and right on. He uh, look here's something that we didn't mention, but that I think is important. He comes from the Southern tradition, which is an oral tradition. He had relatives who were storekeepers. Absolutely. He grew he grew up in an environment where people told stories. That was entertainment. That's what passed the time. That's right. People talked. He learned the gift of communication through his family and through the place that he grew up. And he's, he's had that gift his entire life because it's, it's the environment that he grew up in. That's what he knows. Um, beyond that, look, Bill Clinton is gifted at distilling down complicated ideas into understandable phrases. He treats voters like adults. You know, what 
he didn't do in that speech that John and I noted. He didn't do a spiel about how Barack and Michelle Obama are just like you and can, and can, can feel your pain. He talked about how their policies were going to affect the lives of, of Americans. This was treating voters like grown-ups. It was not, we lived in a, you know, a 20-square-foot apartment and ate saltine crackers while, you know, driving a jalopy. Um, it, it was, it was no, this is how this president has affected your life for the better and what he can do in the future to affect your life. So I think, I think voters appreciate that. But I, I think it, um, it was just his ability to um, make the other side's case for them which you don't, by the way, hear politicians always do, but he always does this. He makes the other side's case, and then he rebuts the other side's case with what he thinks is the proper course. And so he gives the other side their due, and then he goes about explaining why his side is better. And um, he's very talented at that, and um, that to me is why it was effective. Yeah, it seemed, J-Mart, J- that uh, every, almost every speaker in... Uh, Tampa and Charlotte seem to have had a one-hour prep session with Michael Sheehan before they went on. And one of those instructions would have been, remember, you know, there's there might be 15,000 people in the arena, but there's millions of people at home, so right. look directly into the tally light right. and talk into right. their living rooms. You right. almost never saw Clinton make eye contact with the lens because yeah. he seemed to have this confidence that if we were just uh, almost eavesdroppers or peeping right. toms in right. on... Uh, Charlotte, it would have been. A, right. It's going to be a more powerful experience than yeah, him yeah. playing for a camera. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. He um, uh, he was not somebody who was giving a teleprompter speech, as was was clear afterwards when we found out how much he he ad libbed. Um, and he was not playing for the crowd, though. At the same time, necessarily, he was a he was just telling a story, and that's what he does the best. He just. This is the story of Barack Obama, and this is the story of how American politics works right now. And um, few can do that like like he can. And I think that's why it was it was so effective. Uh, uh, Barack Obama gave a speech. Mitt Romney gave a speech. Bill Clinton told a story. I don't know, J. Mart, if you uh, saw this story that had been uh, pushed around the Twitterverse a lot by some of your colleagues. Um, by Walter Kern in the New Republic slouching toward Charlotte, the alienating spectacle that is the Democratic Convention. Did you see that? I did, yeah. I mean, it was it struck me, and I wondered about your thoughts too, that uh, how do you and John and your colleagues at Politico and everyone else trying to follow this race uh, keep focused on sort of your own thoughts when the event happens on screen and yeah. you kind of want to keep your eye on the feed uh, and... And it sort of drives you toward one conclusion or another, yeah. versus just locking yourself in a room to think, how do I, how am I actually living with this? I think one of the ways you do it is just by watching the event by yourself and not paying attention to other stuff. I mean, it's harder now with Twitter, but I'll tell you what: when I'm covering an event um, uh, and writing a story about an event, I will not read my colleague's story because I want to have an an impression that is entirely my own. And um, so I just try to block it out, to tell you the truth. J. Mark, given your own impression, you've written both about Vice President Biden and uh, Representative Paul Ryan uh, yeah. leading up to their conventions. Um, what, what do you? What's your impression of what Paul Ryan feels like on his plane now as he moves from event to event? It was uh, just a few weeks ago that he was announced that he was hailed as a as a really inventive and innovative yeah. pick, uh, and now because uh, he needs to sort of comport himself with the existing Romney message, a lot of the originality of him seems to have been truncated into into a new package. Do you have a sense yeah. of what it's like to be Paul Ryan at this very moment? I think it's got to be somewhat difficult because you're being asked to be the second banana, and he's not been that. Uh, um, he's somebody that has sort of had his own policy ideas and has championed those, and now he's having to um, sublimate that to the good of the top of the ticket. So uh, I think he's obviously ha- happy he was picked and is glad to be on a national ticket, but at the same time, 
when you become the VP nominee, you do lose a measure of intellectual freedom. And I think for somebody who is a thinker, that, that that's probably been a tough thing. You went down to Blacksburg, Virginia, a few weeks ago yeah. to, cover, to cover Joe Biden and then sort of did some analysis of him as he worked the audience uh, in Charlotte as well. What's your impression of this uh, of this uh, understudy on the ticket and whether this is going to be his last campaign? Well, uh, Joe Biden is a uh, an original American uh, character. Um, he is uh, a politician in the, the old-fashioned sense, and uh, he thrives on uh, contact with uh, with voters. I mean, it's kind of like Bill Clinton in that sense. Um, I think he wants to give it another try. I mean, if you read the John Heilman story in New York Magazine, it seems like if he's still in good health in 16, he wants to at least give it a try. He wants to try to run for president. Um, he is somebody who um, has got remarkable touch when it comes to interacting with voters. I mean, he can do things that most politicians cannot. He just has physicality, you know, yeah. putting both arms on top of either shoulder of voters, putting his open palm on the cheek of a woman who is telling a heart a heartfelt story. He, he is he's a very he's a very tactile politician and um he's damn good at it. Uh the problem is is that he didn't have much of a governor. You know he just, he just, yeah. he just let it fly. Uh, and you know that is a tougher thing to do in this era when people are always looking for uh, moments to you know, jump on something that you said, and it's uh, it, it's not quite the same as it was when he first started running. Um, and what's happened is the folks around him are trying to save him from himself, and so they pull back the reins and um, you know don't always let Joe be Joe. Always trying a little too hard. Uh, you wrote one other piece uh, during Charlotte, uh, J Mart. Uh, in Charlotte, its official 2016 has begun. Yes. So beyond Vice President Biden and whether he does or doesn't or whether he holds yeah. out his decision for, you know, the, the opportunities that his son, Bo, the attorney general, might have uh, in the future, what were yeah. some? who were some of the other personalities that bubbled to the surface as you canvassed who was Well, who was as not? you know, Josh, every convention of an incumbent president is also an opportunity for the bench of that party to start start making the rounds and and uh seeking out delegates and reporters to try to get themselves known to the world um and that certainly was happening in charlotte martin o'malley the governor of maryland is certainly interested he was making the rounds in charlotte amy klobuchar senator from minnesota was out there uh brian schweitzer the governor of montana andrew cuomo came down just for a few hours uh, and spoke only to the New York delegation, but clearly he's somebody that I think will give 2016 a look. But the big question marks are Biden, age 73, can he do this? Will he at least try? And then, of course, the big elephant in the room, Hillary Clinton, uh, she says that she's done with public service. Does she mean that? Can she be coaxed? Um, so um, that, to me, is how it looks right now. But let's be honest, uh, in 2004, not a lot of people thought that Barack Obama was going to be the nominee, let alone the President of the United States. Last question for you, Jonathan, before we let you yeah, go. Sure. Uh, uh, your friend and, and my oldest pal from three months old, Mark Leibovich, had a piece about two weeks ago in the Times Magazine entitled, perfectly entitled, Feel the Loathing on the Campaign Trail. Uh, yeah. And talked about and, and sort of got a little blowback from colleagues. Uh, uh, what's, what are you talking about, Lebo? Do you loathe this campaign, Jonathan Martin? How are you approaching this campaign? I don't loathe this campaign, but it's not the f most fun um, on the campaign trail that I've ever had. Look, the candidates and the staffs are trying to eliminate spontaneity as much as they can. And that was part of the lament that I had when I covered Joe Biden was that they're trying to snuff out spontaneity and sort of the campaign becomes more joyless when it is so programmatic uh, and so predictable and so talking point driven. Um, like this campaign too often has become. And I think that's the frustration that a lot of us have had. Um, and I think that's what, what, what Mark touched on in that piece. Um, and I don't know if that's unique to just this cycle or if that's the new normal, but I think that is the chief frustration that we've had. It's just so damn predictable and rote, and um, there, there's not a lot of genuine moments that are 
you know, real and authentic and unpredictable. Well, nothing like an open White House in 2016 to uh, to make so- both sides uh, feel unrestrained. Let, let's hope so. J-Mart, so. one of the brightest lights of the Gang of 500, political oh, course, <laughs> national political correspondent. Thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics for a couple of minutes. Thanks, Josh. Enjoyed it, man. Take Bye care. Now. Let's now move from the here and now of campaign politics, Romney and Obama, to uh, what's going to be happening, I think, October 8th on PBS, the premiere of this season of Independent Lens. And it begins with a propitious piece by filmmaker Brad Lichtenstein called As Goes Janesville. And let me be honest, uh, I knew Paul Ryan before the Tampa convention. I really just knew him as Republican of Wisconsin. And when he went into details of his life story, uh, I started thinking more that Wisconsin is just not a state. It's a bunch of cities, a a bunch of businesses, and a lot of people. And I wanted to know more about it. So here comes this movie that I think is going to be very revealing of what Wisconsin really has been like, uh, not only the last few years, but for 100 years, as General Motors was such a major part of the city of Janesville. Let's just hear a little bit to remind us how we were all sort of woken up about Janesville from Paul Ryan in Tampa. My home state voted for President Obama. When he talked about change, many people liked the sound of it, especially in Janesville, where we were about to lose a major factory. A lot of guys I went to high school with worked at that GM plant. Right there at that plant, Candidate Obama said, I believe that if our government is there to support you, this plant will be here for another 100 years. That's what he said in 2008. Well, as it turned out, that plant didn't last another year. It is locked up and empty to this day. Well, I was quite riveted by that speech, but I can only imagine what filmmaker Brad Lichtenstein thought as a focus of the film that he's been working on, I think, for three years, was suddenly brought into national prominence. Brad, welcome to Polyoptics. What did you think as you were watching Congressman Ryan make that speech? Uh, well, it's it's been an interesting ride. You know, when we started the film, nobody, I don't think, in the country had any idea where Janesville was or what its story was. And we started out thinking that Janesville was a kind of microcosm for America. Of course, the twist of politics and events has uh, changed all of that. I mean, first when the govern when the uh, dispute over collective bargaining ended up right in the center of our film over Governor Walker's proposal and the eventual law that uh, did away with public uh, collective bargaining for public employees, and then when Paul Ryan got nominated to be the GOP VP candidate, uh, suddenly Janesville was in the news everywhere, and it certainly has. Uh, created uh, a bit of a platform for for our movie, which I think is sort of the story behind the speech. Yeah. It's uh, you know it's it's what happens on the ground with the people who have been dealing with reinventing their economy ever since that GM plant shut down. Well, congratulations on a on a riveting film and a beautifully shot film, and I want to get into that in a minute. Oh, but just to provide you. some bookends for our conversation, let's go back to 2008 sure. and hear what then Senator Obama had to say about that plant. I mean, I know that General Motors has been going through some bad news lately. And I know how hard your governor has been fighting to keep jobs in this plant. But I also know how much progress you've made, how many hybrids and fuel-efficient vehicles you're churning out. And I believe that if our government is there to support you and give you the assistance you need to retool and make this transition, that this plant will be here for another 100 years. So, Brad, given that bookend, uh, how did you, you're a Brooklynite, how did you find yourself in Janesville, Wisconsin, and hunting down these real people's stories to tell over the course of 90 minutes with As Goes Janesville? Well, um, I'm I'm a Brooklynite by way of Atlanta, and now I'm a Wisconsinite because I've lived here for 10 years. Um, and, and as it turns out, my wife grew up in Janesville, Wisconsin. Um, Paul Ryan's father was a law partner of my father-in-law. Paul Ryan's mom had attended our engagement party, um, and Paul grew up with my sister-in-law. So um, there's a lot of connections to Janesville, 
And when the economy began to collapse, um, I got very interested in trying to tell a story that would not so much be a chronicle of the collapse, but I was really interested in how people would put the pieces back together. And I thought that there was no better place than a community that I already knew something about, and it was only an hour and 15 minutes away from my doorstep where I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, I when I lived in New York, people would always, the, the uh, commissioning editors, the development people at stations and networks and stuff would always be asking me, you know, we need stories from the heartland. And I thought, well, here I am, right in the middle of the heartland, right in the middle of the rest of America, flyover country, as it were. And um, I had this great opportunity to be able to get, at a very intimate level, the story of how people are reinventing their lives and reinventing their community. Um, can I just say something about the bookends that you sure, made? Sure, please. Um, you know, it's been interesting from my perspective. We actually use a piece of that of that speech that Obama gave in 2008. It was February at the GM plant. Um, and one of one of the things that's frustrating uh, for me personally as a filmmaker who has spent three years uh, telling this story or filming this story and 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 then of course sharing it with the world in October is that. Um, the statements that uh, President Obama made have been taken out of context, um, and so has the response to those statements from from his campaign. And it's a shame to me, because what he was really talking about there was this very monumental issue of what the world's largest uh, motor company needed to do in order to retool itself and re reinvent itself for the 21st century. Um, you know, and I think it speaks volumes uh, to to then see that they couldn't do it on their own, that um, there needed to be a government bailout. That spawned, I think, uh, a really interesting move from Paul Ryan, who had uh, opposed all kinds of federal earmarks in his own district, as, as is well known now. But he deviated from that and t took a very pragmatic stance and um, and voted for the auto bailout to try to help save the company that was responsible for prosperity and middle-class life in his town. And it's that kind of complexity that I feel like we get at, and that's the same thing that gets missed in the news cycle over and over. Um, and yet, you know, we're in the midst of an economic crisis that hasn't abated. And I feel like the great tragedy, which I think also comes across in the film, is that pragmatism and solutions really don't have a place in our political discourse, which is a shame. Well, Brad, I want to get I want to get into talking about the five major characters uh, sure. in your film: uh, Gail Listenby, Mary Wilmer Sheedy, Angie Hodges, Cindy Deegan, and Tim Cullen. In a second, but to but to your point, one question that I had, and you know, you don't spend a lot of time in it in the film, but you must live it every day, so you have perspective on it. You have so many, I'll call them beauty shots of the plant itself, some helicopter shots, some tripod shots. Um, and I, looking at it, I'm thinking to myself as a, you know, I don't know from auto plants, but I'm saying, and, and you have these wonderful archival pictures from the 1930s of the 500,000th mm -hmm. car Chevy come off the assembly line. And I'm saying, that's fine, but maybe a 100-year-old plant is a dinosaur and bailout or not, GM living or not, the next GM might say, uh, Janesville served us well, but the the new plants that we need to build have to should, can be on smaller footprints, more technologically advanced. And as much as my heart bled for people like Gail and Angie and Cindy, uh, I, I just asked the pragmatic question that maybe you can answer. Might the lifespan of Janesville have come to an end anyway? I think your question is, is a good one. I mean, it, it exemplifies the kind of complexity that we're trying to get at. I always tell people with this film that I'm not really trying to answer questions so much as to raise new ones. And I think what you're talking about, and I think the dilemma of globalism and the, the sort of vexing problem of how you reinvent an economy and at the same time try to reinvent the American dream along with it so that people have family-supporting wages and at the same time, businesses are able to thrive and grow is is the dilemma that we face. And, and I think it's kind of exemplified in the carcass of that old plant, too. Um, I mean, th you're right. It's a 100-year-old plant. Um, the age of it had a lot to do uh, with why GM did not choose to keep it open. There was a competition 
among three plants to get a new small car, and um, Janesville lost in that competition. But part of that competition, too, was that the local union, the UAW chapter, led the way in concessions, and GM ended up using those concessions, to quote one of the characters in our film, uh, Tim Cullen, they used those concessions to beat us over the head. They basically used them as a basis for the new UAW contract, which didn't help people in Janesville. They were still out of a job, um, but it did help to create the lower-wage two-tier system that uh, is now being implemented throughout the workforce. And, you know, I think the film, I think that the situation with GM, I think our entire economic crisis kind of begs this question, which is um, how do you reinvent an economy in a way that's inclusive and that's able to keep the middle class strong and vibrant, which, of course, is what ultimately fuels the economy as well, because they are the consumers of most of the goods that go to market in our own domestic economy and local economies. In your film, As Goes Janesville, Brad, you you point out that the average GM worker uh, had a, a, a salary of about $29 an hour. And as I watched, uh, uh, I think it was Angie or Cindy or Gail look for new work, he, she they were given this sort of uh, strong medicine of the fact that the jobs that they were applying for were, were more in the area of 7 bucks an hour. Right. And I'd like to meet some of them and hear your, your uh, thoughts on who they were when you met them, some of the experiences they faced and, and where they are today. So let's begin with Gail Listenby. It's been so long since I've looked for a job. I went straight to the plant at 19 years old. I don't see any jobs that's paying over seven twenty-five. I can't go back to minimum wage. How can you live? Brad, tell me about Gail. Gail's incredible. <laughs> Gail is an incredibly resilient person. Um, she's the mother of two daughters, um, both of whom are in middle school, one entering high school. Um, her husband had been granted disability. He worked at the GM plant there, and he had had a pretty horrible injury where it detached his bicep, among other things. So he's more or less a house husband. And when Gail discovers that she can't really get a job that pays a living wage, she ends up commuting to the GM plant four and a half hours away in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which, you know, is not uncommon. A, a lot of people, over 800 families were split up in Janesville as people who worked for GM took a transfer to a different plant somewhere else. And, you know, just as a person, Gail is this uh, hilarious personality. She's constantly making jokes. Um, she's a huge family, so, you know, we ended up not using a lot of the footage, but um, we shot with her at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and there were just literally dozens of people filling the house, some of whom actually were part of um, the first wave of African-American workers who integrated the Janesville plant, um, I believe, in the early 70s. I don't quite remember when, when that first happened. Um, so, you know, she's and, – and that's part of the reason why we chose to follow her. I mean, she's just a completely inviting, engaging person. Another interesting story, Brad, was uh, Angie Hodges, single parent of her son, DJ, worked at the plant for 23 years and also made the call to, uh, to work in Fort Wayne. What about Angie? Well, Angie is different than Gail in that Angie is a much more private person. Um, you know, we were very fortunate to be able to get access to her. Um, and, you know, for her it was a real dilemma because her son is older. Um, he turned 18 while we were filming, and so he had finished high school. And his plan was to go to school to learn to be an auto mechanic. Um, he and Angie both have a real deep love for muscle cars um, GM muscle cars in particular. Yeah, he loves the GM muscle cars. All I can think about was him trying to get home to him. While I'm trying to help PJ, they terminate me. I'm like, with insurance, I mean, the bills. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want to give it all away, but um, there's a tragedy that yeah. happens, and DJ is in a crash, um, and she's faced with a real problem uh, that I think all parents can can feel, and that is that her son is far away, he's in trouble, she can't get home right away, Eesh. she can't take care of him. Cindy Deegan uh, worked for the Alcoa assembly line for 13 years, uh, and she's a story that uh, you see her working so hard to sort of retrain herself. 
and also dealing with uh, a huge uh, healthcare scare and and the and the reality of of not having insurance after her unemployment runs out. I'm screwed. <laughs> Three hundred and ten dollars unemployment. Ninety-five dollars is going for my medical. How does the story end for Cindy? Well, you want me to say how the story ends? I don't no. know if I want to quite do that, but but I mean the 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 um, real uh, heart-rending part of Cindy's story is that she does everything right. Um, I remember that when Bill Clinton was president, he used to also always talk about people who have followed all the rules yep. and then don't get what they deserve. And uh, Cindy is that person. I mean, she graduated with straight A's through a job retraining program. She never thought she'd find herself in school at 41 years old. Um, she does it all right. And then, you know, there's a moment in the film where you find out that she can't find a job. Um, and, you know, she's, she's really kind of at the end of her rope because unemployment has been extended by Congress a few times, but it won't be extended anymore. Her husband is also on disability. You know, I chose to follow women in part because I was also really interested in women who are breadwinners for their families and also, um, you know, deeply embedded in uh, as caregivers in their families. And so, you know, here she is promising her daughter that her daughter won't have to go into the military in order to attend college. And yet she herself is finding herself out of options in terms of being able to keep that promise. Sort of on the other side of the tracks at Janesville, you also focus on Mary Wilmer Sheedy, and uh, she's president of, of M&I Bank. First, curious about how she decided to allow Brad Lichtenstein to, to follow her as closely as you did, and, and what were your observations of her? And I just loved her character. There, there was such a huge heart to try and pull the, pull the town back together. The average rate of a GM worker was about $28, $29 an hour. Those days here are over. And, and I think that's okay. It's forced us all to kind of sharpen our saw and, you know, have a new perspective on things. And Mary, Mary is sort of like Miss Janesville. She's involved in everything from, you know, whether it's a fundraiser for Alzheimer's or the Rotary Gardens, or uh, she is actually the president of the Rotary Gardens, involved in the Rotary, involved in every single civic activity um, that she can be involved with, and and she's uh, very much in line with the idea that, um, as she says, that government doesn't solve problems, that business solves problems, and that um, if we give business the ability and the freedom to do that, then it will be able to create jobs and, in this case, get the Janesville area back to work. Um, and the reason I, I chose to follow her is exactly what you said. I mean, she's an incredibly likable person. Her heart is all committed to the welfare of her community. Um, and at the same time, you know, she's, she stands in opposition to a lot of people who align themselves more with the interests of labor and would um, take issue with some of the things that she says in the film, particularly um, the, the, the uh, line that she has about how the days of $28 an hour are over, and that's okay. You, you also can look at what she has to say and understand that she's a realist. Um, she sees the, the, the writing on the wall, so to speak, or saw it, and understands that those kinds of jobs aren't coming back. So how do you move on? How do you reinvent your economy with, um, with the tools that you have? So, you know, Mary, Mary's interesting. You asked about access, um, and I will admit that it was much harder to get access to Mary and the whole Rock County 5.0, which is the economic Rock development Rock County group. 5.0. I want to know how, it, how Rock County 5.0 is doing. <laughs> well, they are continuing. They're, they're, um, you know, they're an economic development group that raised a million and a half private dollars to try to do what they felt like government couldn't do in terms of reinventing their economy. Um, you know, the latest thing they've done is they've wrapped buses in Chicago with a big message that says, you know, go do business in Wisconsin. Um, they are deeply aligned with Governor Walker, and at the time Governor Walker was running for office on a slogan that said Wisconsin is open for business, uh, so much so that he actually put that slogan instead of his name on all of the signs at the Wisconsin-Illinois border. And, um, you know, um, um, Mary is a banker, and so naturally she and a lot of the corporate folks 
that she is uh, part of um, an affiliation with are reticent about uh, sharing their lives and sharing their meetings that I was allowed to shoot and so forth. Um, and, you know, for me, it was a matter of wanting to really show what is going on in terms of our economic crisis from multiple perspectives and being able to get access to business was key to that. Otherwise, I feel like maybe even the most valuable perspective would be missing in a story like this. Now, finally, I think if if Robert Redford's, uh, I think, 1972 film, The Candidate, uh, love were, that film. <laughs> were, to, were to be filmed as a sequel, uh, Tim Cullen might look a little like Redford uh, about 40 <laughs> years on. You hit somewhere near bottom where Janesville and Rock County is today. It's brutally painful to watch. I'm running to try to get jobs here. The manufacturing empire, employee unions, helped us build with the great middle class. But it's changed. I believe the income gap is going to grow for probably the next 50 years. Tell me about Tim Cullen. He's such a, a gentle soul, and, and I wondered if he was sort of made for the hard scrabble of politics. Right. Well, uh, Tim Cullen is a state senator from Wisconsin, and uh, the, the, the uh, engaging thing about him is that at the center of the controversy over collective bargaining, he was trying to negotiate a settlement between the governor's chief of staff um, and the Democrats so that the Democrats would come back from Illinois and end the holdout over uh, what would become Act 10 in Wisconsin. And people are familiar, I'm sure, with all of the protests. Um, and, you know, there's this very telling moment in the film when a Buffalo reporter posing as a Koch brother calls Governor Walker and he says, um, you're not talking to any of those Democrat bastards, are you? And Scott Walker says, well, there is one, Tim Cullen. And then he goes on to say, but I wouldn't talk to him, and I'll tell you why. He's not one of us. He's not a conservative. He is just a pragmatist. He's just trying to get something done. <laughs> and, you know, in that moment, honestly, you know, the film has a lot of different perspectives. I, I kind of feel like my trademark and, and others, not just me, lots of filmmakers who make these kinds of films, our trademark is trying to give lots of different perspectives so the audiences can enter the film in lots of different ways. But ultimately, what feels most tragic to me about what I filmed and put together is that moment, that uh, there is a moment when uh, there's this clear choice between ideological purity or pragmatism, trying to get something done. And in that moment, Governor Walker dismisses pragmatism. And I think, you know, you're right, Tim Cullen seems like a kind of washed-up politician from the days long past when the men of politics would get together and hammer out a solution, and it was good for everybody and all of that, which I'm not sure those days ever existed. But in any case, um, now he is a seasoned pro, I have to say. say He was in the Wisconsin State Senate, and he was the uh, leader uh, for um, a number of years, and he was there for, I think, a total of 24 years, or no, he was there 24 years ago. I can't remember how long his tenure was. So he knows what he's doing. Um, he just lives in a political world now where uh, people are more interested in their ideological encampments than they are in trying to solve problems. Brad, let me get a sense of of your signature style. I mean, you mentioned some of the things that you do, but, uh, you know, I've, in the last few years, certainly... Uh, Inconvenient Truth, Waiting for Superman. As I was watching uh, As Goes Janesville, I felt uh, the camera on much more stable ground, certainly many many more moments on the tripod than on your shoulder, it seemed, and the music was so evocative and the wide shots were so evocative. When you're trying to tell a story so so deep into people like Gail and Mary and Angie and Cindy, what what else do you do with the camera and in the editing room to, to give the movie its sweep? Well, I mean, I think that my my uh, the people I admire most are kind of come from two different worlds. One are the great cinema verite filmmakers from the 50s and 60s, and in particular Fred Wiseman. And my favorite film by him is called High School Two, where he camps out in a high school uh, during Vietnam. And kind of the way I intend Janesville to be a kind of microcosm for America, High School Two is a microcosm for America going through all the turbulent early 70s and the sort of fallout from the 60s and, and the 
and the war continuing and so forth. Um, so I think a lot about the masters of verite, but I also think a lot about Robert Altman, yep. who, you know, I, I love all of his noble failure, failures. I also love all of his noble achievements. And I, I, what I like is the way in which he tries to create a kind of world out of a whole cast of characters. It's, it's a very ensemble approach. And so every time you kind of are following along with one story, one of the characters from another part of the story crosses the frame and, and captures your attention, or you end up going there in the next scene. And, and he manages to sort of keep all the storylines moving towards some kind of, of, I hope, climatic ending. Um, and, you know, I really admire the way he does it in MASH, and I admire the way he does it in Nashville. And, and so that's in my mind a lot. And also, I'm a political guy. You know, I worked for John Lewis when I was just a kid, and he was campaigning in Atlanta when I was in high school, went to Washington with him. I'm fascinated by stagecraft. I'm fascinated by the political process. I was, I um, started to get a Ph.D. in political philosophy but dropped out to start making films. So, um, you know, I really sort of love all this uh, stuff and, and try – and I guess ultimately – um, I'm trying to create films that give all these different perspectives because I want to invite people to participate in civic dialogue and civic space. And you know, some some might accuse me of being a little Pollyannish, but I actually think that public service is a uh, is a higher calling, and that um, I admire a lot of the people who take it on. And I believe in our democracy, and I believe in our politics as a very messy but ultimately very valuable way to solve problems. So I try to take that perspective into my filmmaking as well. No accident, I think, Brad, that when you were shooting Tim Cullen in Illinois, uh, you strategically polyoptic, polyoptically put a, a campaign poster of Bobby Kennedy over his shoulder. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, it, it was partially strategic and it was partially not. I mean, he, he has this teeny little office and there just truly aren't that many directors to shoot in. Um, but the only thing in his office that really is on the wall, other than the plaque that he reads from in some old pictures, is that big poster of Bobby Kennedy. And I, I love sort of the way that we framed him, where he's kind of leaning in at the, you know, sort of lower right side of the frame, and the poster is big behind him in the upper left background of the frame. So thank you for noticing. Well, thank you for doing the film, Brad. The, the film is uh, As Goes Janesville. Certainly so much more on our radar screen today as we watch the vice presidential candidate, the Republican Party, Congressman Paul Ryan, native son of Janesville, crisscrossing the country, and wonder what will come next for this town that has had such great pride in its 100-year-old uh, General Motors plant and what comes next and the people like Angie Hodges, Gail Listenby, Cindy Deegan, Mary Wilmer Sheedy, and, and uh, Tim Cullen working so hard to try and figure out what's the next chapter for Janesville. We'll see how it turns out October 8th through Independent Lens on Public Television, directed by Brad Lichtenstein, as goes Janesville. Brad, thanks for joining us on Politics. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. As I said at the top of the broadcast, all was not photo ops on the top of the fold this week, though that shot of Barack Obama being swept off his feet by Republican pizza parlor owner Scott Van Duzer in Fort Pierce won't fade away fast. Note that Obama's polling is now ticking up in Florida. Ah, the power of polyoptics. But putting down the pitcher and the pie and the president, we're reminded that while it's easier and more efficient to prosecute a campaign around, quote, it's the economy, stupid. You can't economize on having the best foreign policy team around you, and you need to sober up pretty fast when faced with a crisis abroad. As some of our listeners know, during my time at the White House, I visited about 40 countries with President Clinton. They were often state visits, surrounded by pomp and pageant. But sometimes, like in Bosnia or Syria, the atmosphere was tense, and in almost every visit we moved around in armored cars. But it was nothing. Nothing like that which J. Christopher Stevens encountered as his Greek car cargo ship approached the shores of Benghazi in April 2011. His mission? Establish a diplomatic beachhead for the United States amid violent turmoil. Nick Burns spent 27 years as a U.S. diplomat, working for every president from Jimmy Carter to George W. Bush. 
leaving Foggy Bottom in 2008 as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. During my White House days, he ran the Russia desk on the National Security Staff, then the State Department spokesman, then he left for Athens as Ambassador to Greece. Today, among other things, he's Professor of the Practice of Diplomacy and International Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. Nick, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be with you. Nick, this week was filled with issues on your beat, massive complexity about timing, tactics, and message. But bring us back to the core mission of the diplomat, what Chris Stevens was doing on a cargo ship in April 2011. Why was he there? Well, we have American diplomats stationed around the world, often in the most dangerous places, to represent the American people. Uh, Chris Stevens was a great young ambassador. He was in one of the toughest countries in the world, in Libya, where, of course, the United States had helped to dislodge the dictator Muammar Gaddafi's power, and Ambassador Stevens was sent into Benghazi, which is the second largest city in the country in the eastern part of Libya, to make contact with the Libyan opposition at a time when Gaddafi was still in power. And he did so brilliantly. He made friends with the United States. He represented us with great distinction. Um, and like all other diplomats, he had to travel around the country uh, and obviously had to do his best to represent us politically, to say the right thing, to represent our values, to represent American business, and of course to try our best to try to help Bolivians plant some seeds of democracy where democracy has not been before. So, so Nick, but when you actually arrive at the shores of Benghazi, what, what is Secretary Clinton and President Obama actually expecting Chris to do? Colonel Gaddafi is still in power. What, what can a diplomat do with that at, for those crucial months? What's, he really, what's his real mission and, and in terms of setting up a cable system, in terms of setting up communications and, and representing the United States to the rebels? What's, what's really the well, mission at, at hand? It was the most difficult situation that I could imagine. I wasn't there. I, I just know from reading in the papers about what he did. But he had to essentially start an uh, American diplomatic outpost from scratch. He had to make contact with people he'd never met before. There was a rebel alliance, which was quite um, disparate in terms of its makeup, tribal leaders, exiles, community leaders. Chris had to meet all of them assess the people with whom we could work and could not work, and uh, by all accounts, he was a tremendous uh, and very, very positive American representative, and because of the outstanding work that he did, I understand that President Obama and Secretary Clinton then decided to appoint an ambassador to Libya once, once the Libyan people had overthrown the regime. But we do have men and women stationed every, in every part of the world. We've had American diplomats, um, uh, of course, embedded with our troops and Iraq and Afghanistan for the better part of the last decade. We have American diplomats serving uh, in hostile environments. We, uh, our people promote good political relations between the U.S. and other countries. They promote good commercial relations. Um, they do everything possible to assist American citizens in distress. And I think the American people, or at least the press, doesn't often cover American diplomats. So maybe a lot of Americans don't know what diplomats do, but they... They do very tough and hard work that benefits our country. Chris was the first U.S. ambassador killed in the line of duty since Adolf Dubbs was kidnapped and killed in Kabul in 1979. Nick Burns, how do Foreign Service officers, whose weapons are the pen rather than the sword, deal with the danger of these assignments? It hasn't happened since 79, but it has to not be far from the back of your mind when you are assigned to represent the U.S. on foreign soil. Well, I think that the danger of service overseas in an age of terrorism uh, has been really a defining feature of the Foreign Service over the last 30 years or so. Um, we um, obviously do everything we can, and I, I've retired from the Foreign Service, but of course I'm still quite loyal to it. Um, the De Department of State trains all of our officers in security measures, um, and the Department does those does everything it can to protect our embassies and consulates. We have um, toughened security at our embassies and consulates over the last few decades, and this is through Republican and Democratic administrations, uh, to an extent that was um, that, that is that I think where we can protect our people in most parts of the world. But, you know, we do rely on host governments for security under the Vienna Convention, which is international law. It's the host government 
that has to provide the police and security forces to protect every diplomatic establishment. So in Washington, for instance, it's the United States that has to protect every foreign embassy. And in the case of Benghazi, uh, it, it just appears from the press report that the Libyan security forces were not adequate to the task, obviously. There weren't enough of them. They weren't, I don't know how well trained they were. I just don't know. But they simply did not do the job they should have done to protect our consulate in Benghazi. The same is true of the situation in Cairo, where two days ago, three days ago, uh, a mob attacked went over the wall, got inside the embassy compounds, and the Egyptian government should have provided better security and should have kept those, those protesters and terrorists outside of our embassy. So there's only so much that the United States can do halfway around the world with a small embassy staff um, in a situation like that. We really do uh, depend on the goodwill of foreign governments. And in this case, I think President Obama was right to call upon the Egyptian government, the Libyan government, to do a much better job and be much committed to security. And you know, President Obama called the Egyptian president and made that request personally. Nick, now putting on your hat as a public affairs officer, remembering you were a State Department spokesman and thinking about the scene as it unfolded in Cairo, the actions of the press office in Embassy Cairo have been dissected pretty thoroughly by the cable, among other news outlets. If you're sitting at Foggy Bottom as the State Department spokesman and trying to make sense of what they're doing at Embassy in Cairo many hours before the protest began, what are you thinking? Well, you know, I, I don't... I certainly don't want to second-guess anybody in our embassies and consulates which were attacked over the last week. Uh, I've served in Embassy Cairo in the 1980s. I've served in other embassies which have seen lots of protests and demonstrations and threats. And, you know, I can imagine what it, what it must have been like to have been in the embassy the other day. They closed down the embassy as they could have. They sent employees home. They knew a big protest was coming. And they obviously knew that they had a chance to turn violent because of this, because of the appearance uh, on YouTube of this hateful film uh, that had appeared from the United States, uh, not from our government, obviously, but from some private individual, which was hateful uh, towards Islam and impugned uh, the character of the Prophet Muhammad. And in, in, in a volatile country like Egypt, um, you can imagine how difficult this situation was. So if the embassy issued a statement disavowing this hateful and vile film, I understand why they'd want to do that. Now, we have competing objectives here. Obviously, under the First Amendment of our Constitution, any American has the right of freedom of speech, and you saw President Obama and Secretary Clinton stand up for that uh, this week. But both of them also said, that the United States is not going to support um, in, intentional provocative acts to impugn other people's religion. So we have lots of American interests at stake here, and I just I find it dismaying that people would attack our diplomats for having tried their very best to protect our embassy. And in that sense, I was very disappointed, and I'm not a political person, I was disappointed by Governor Romney's state because he jumped into this crisis. He clearly didn't know all the facts. He made some very disparaging comments about President Obama that were completely untrue. And he injected policy into a situation where I think we should have just rallied around our diplomats who were being attacked. We should have put America first and, um, and not engaged in partisan politics. So... I'm just a layman now, just like you, working at, uh, as a professor at the Kennedy School, working with the Cohen Group, and I'm hearing things as they unfold, and I'm hearing about this hateful film. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Nick, that, boy, I should go and see what this film is about, just so I understand how indeed horrible it is. And I did that eventually. But is this something that Governor Romney or his advisors should have taken a look at first to understand what what had actually been put out to see how way absurd and over-the-top this piece was? They saw an opportunity to say again what they've been saying for months. They say that President Obama apologizes for the United States. There is no evidence that he does so. During the three and a half years he's been president, he's been a stalwart defender of the United States. I've never seen 
uh, these apologies that the Romney campaign talked about. And so, you know, a real mistake to think that you could seek political advantage, this is the Romney campaign, at a time when Americans are being attacked, the proper reaction would have been to have done what uh, Condi Rice did. Not a statement, just experiences of our diplomats and lamenting the tragic loss of four of them in Benghazi. This is just not a time for politics. And I think that was the fundamental mistake that Governor Romney made. And you've written about some of this for the Boston Globe, uh, Nick Burns. And, um, you know, everybody's quick to talk about President Obama's foreign policy cred. But four years ago, he was just two years removed from being an Illinois state senator. If you're Governor Mitt Romney, with just fit over 50 days before Election Day, what would you counsel he do to level the playing field for himself on foreign policy to, to get to maybe the level that you're talking about? What can he do for well, the next I do 50 think- days? Um, and I worked for both Republican and Democratic administrations uh, in my career. I, I, it's interesting. In most elections over the last 30 years, the Republicans have tried to run to the right of Democrats on foreign policy and to assert that, that they, the Republicans, are the party that can best defend the United States. And what's interesting about how this election is developing, that it's really the Democrats who I think have the high ground because President Obama has a good record on foreign policy, particularly on security issues, where he has been very aggressive in pursuing the war against uh, terrorists on the Pakistan-Afghan border. Where, and, of course, President Obama ordered uh, very courageously the attack that ended uh, the work and life of Osama bin Laden. And the president, I think, has done very, very well to raise the credibility of the United States around the world. So that's a difficult agenda to attack. What I would think is that uh, Romney campaign made campaigning to get away from slogans, and they need to present some very clear, well-thought-out ideas about how they would govern differently in foreign policy, and I just don't think we've heard that yet. So, Nick Burns, I appreciate so much you making some time to talk with us today. Let's try and leave this conversation on an upbeat note. You're, You're a kid from Wellesley. I'm from Newton. The Red Sox have managed to free up a quarter of a billion dollars of their payroll for the future. The Middle East may remain unsolvable for decades, but how can we establish peace on Yaki Way? <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, there's a crisis in Boston. It's called the fate of the Red Sox. I live in Cambridge, Mass. now, and so I read about this, live it every day. I think it was a good move for the Red Sox to get $265 million off their payroll, record the book. It gives the Red Sox a lot of flexibility to go out, hopefully, and rebuild the pitching staff and get some younger players in the lineup, and we'll be back. And there's only five months until pitchers and catchers report, right? That's exactly right. Good February in Fort Myers, Florida. Nick, give my best to everyone in Cambridge and Boston. We'll talk to you down the road. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.